Our scripture reading today is from, uh, the text is 2 Timothy uh, 4, verses 6 to 22, which is on page 996 in your pew Bibles and also behind me. Let's listen to God's word. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. And my first defense, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the households of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Uh, Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be to you. I might have gone a little, few extra verses. I got caught up in a, the Greek. Was that it? Okay. Hey, did he did he do fantastic with those all those names, huh? Who would have? I can't be that far back, guys. <laughs> We're continuing our series about the gospel in life, in particular, in the life of students. Though this sermon is very relevant for students, I'm sure we'll each find it very relevant as well as I do kind of at the other end of the stage of life. Uh, Paul's words here are incredibly guiding and challenging at the same time. Um, As students, you're about to make many momentous decisions. If you're still in high school, you're figuring out your next step if that step is going to be further education or not, and if it is further education, then you're going to have to choose a college, and there's there's going to be a a plethora of opportunities and choices. You're going to choose a major, and you may try to feel your way through, but eventually you're going to choose a profession. If you don't choose the education, you're, you're starting to look at your future profession, which is going to determine a lot of your future life. And where are you going to live? And what community will you be living? 
and you'll make a choice as to whether you want to ma- you're going to marry or not, and that person you marry is, is going to be gigantic, and then you have the decision of whether you're going to have children or not, and that's pretty big as well. And then you're going to stay with the same career, change the job. Uh, where are you going to be with your spiritual life? What church are you going to join? There's just so many decisions ahead of you. And they will be charting the course of your life. But there's one question that looms over all of them and is much greater than all. And that is, what is your life going to be all about? What is going to be the greatest ambition in your life? Or in other words, when you get to your last days, what do you want to be able to say about your life? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that your word is so rich, so full, and so gracious in giving. I pray that your spirit might take this word, bringing it to where each of us is living today, that you will plant within us truths, messages that your spirit will bring back up at the right time, at the opportune times. Lord, you be the one who speaks to us today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Steve Jobs said, We're here to put a dent in the universe. Feel that way? We're here to put a dent in the universe. And he certainly did. I mean, he revolutionized the use of the personal computer. He went to Pixar and revolutionized uh, computer animation. He brought us the iPhone, the iPad, the iPod. He certainly put a dent in our universe and made it much better in the way we gather information, the way we're able to communicate. Uh, Now across borders throughout the world, he's made a difference. The Apostle Paul also made a difference. His work in bringing the gospel to places where it had never gone before is what brought Christianity to our world. And Christianity has transformed our world with so much good. But more than that, he brought eternal life to thousands and ultimately to hundreds of millions of people through the churches and the growth of his churches. He gave them eternity. So we have to ask ourselves the question, we can strive to produce like Steve Jobs did, which is is a good thing, and hopefully some of us will do that, but that must take back seat to the things that Paul was all about, and those are the things that are eternal. Uh, Existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre said this, Life has no meaning the moment you lose the illusion of being eternal. Now, he he thought eternity was an illusion. We know better. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we know eternity is not an illusion. But do you hear what he's saying? He's acknowledging that if all we have is the here and now, 
and maybe the next millennia or two or three, if there is no eternity, then everything we do eventually turns to dust. We can pass it on to generation after generation after generation, but it turns to dust unless it is something of God that lasts forever. Uh, Percy Shelley captured this in his poem, Osmandius. And in that, he speaks of a traveler who's crossing a desert and he finds this stump in this collapsed statue and he reads at the base. It says, My name is Osmandius, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty in despair. Nothing besides remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. If we are not producing what is eternal, we may think, you know, we can be the king, that we can show people everything we created, but eventually it turns to dust. Only what we do for Jesus Christ is going to last. So as you set your ambition, think always in terms, is it something that's going to go beyond this life? Paul could say that at the end of his life when he says, for I'm already poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. See, Timothy, 2 Timothy is the last letter that Paul wrote. He knows he is about to die. And so he stands in that place where he takes inventory of his life. A place we will all stand one day. And he can look back and say, I have fought the fight. I have produced that which is internal. I myself am getting a crown of righteousness. And that's available to anybody who would love the Lord's appearing, who would follow Jesus Christ. And we know how much he produced in this life, not just in his own life, but in the lives of so many others coming down even to us today as we read his letter. Now, at first glance, when we look at these words, it sounds like Paul's patting himself on the back. I fought the fight. But if you know Paul, that's the furthest thing from Paul's mind. This is the same man who said, I am the chief sinner. He's the one who said, I boast in my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell in me. He's the one who was embarrassed to lay out his, his, his sufferings in 2 Corinthians because he was forced to, but he's embarrassed to do that. And he was the one who, who brought up his spiritual resume and said, this is rubbish comparison to the righteousness of Christ. There, there's not an ounce of arrogance in this man. The reason he is saying this is he is still pouring into the life of Timothy. And he is showing Timothy life is not about yesterday, today, or even tomorrow. Life is ultimately about when you stand at the end of your life and take inventory, what are you going to be able to say? And this is what I'm able to say, and I hope that one day you too are able to say the same thing. So what is it 
that Paul was after. And he could say at the end, I pretty much did it. And we see that Paul had three great ambitions. The first was to grab a hold of the call, the upward call of God, which is ultimately to become like Jesus Christ. When God created us, he created us in his image. So when you think about an image, now where do you see your image? Most of you this morning, it looks like you probably all did look in a mirror. And you saw your image, and what you didn't like, you, you combed your hair or put on makeup, and uh, you saw your image in the mirror. So if we are the image of God, think of it in terms of we are to be like a mirror reflecting the image and the character and the communicable attributes of God of love and grace and goodness and holiness and justice and truthfulness and faithfulness and, and mercy. And that's who we are and who we were created to be. When humanity rejected God, what happened is that mirror became warped. And the image of God remained, but it became twisted and warped. And now think in terms of a funhouse mirror. When you go to a funhouse mirror, what do you see? You see your image. That's you in there, right? Do you like the look of it? Pretty humorous, isn't it? <clears throat> All of a sudden, my mouth takes over my face. And my face blows up. My he whole head blows up, and then I got this long skinny torso and this bulging midsection and these long clown feet and it's like well that's that's me but boy it is humorous for me or anyone else to look at you see that's what sin does to us it takes the image of god that we were created to be and it warps us and so there are still elements we love uh, we try to live moral lives. We hope to be faithful. We value goodness and tolerance and, and justice. But along with that, we, we, we fail to do these things. And along with it, there is bitterness and selfishness and gossip and slander and hatred and greed. And we are such a warped picture of God. And we almost need to, to cry when we think that we stand to the world before the world and say, this is what, I am what God looks like. But Christ came to die to forgive us our sins, but also to straighten out that mirror. To begin to transform us to look more and more like the people we were created to be, which is the image of God. Paul understood that. That was the upward call that Paul had in his life, to have the victory over sin that Jesus Christ died to bring. As you're in school, the big question you will wrestle with, whether consciously or unconsciously, is what is my identity? Who am I? And what you're going to find in most 
campus cultures, what you find in your movies, what you find across the board in our culture today is what is called expressive individualism. I talked about it a little bit in the past sermon. And, and what expressive individualism says is, in many ways, it's all about you. You need to find yourself and, and not pay attention to what anyone, anyone else feels about you or thinks about you, but you find yourself and you live your life as the authentic you. Um, I'll repeat what I, the other, what I said a couple weeks ago. The movie Frozen captures this in Elsa's song. As she sings, I don't care what you're going to say, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Here I stand, I stand, and here I stay. I have found my authentic self, and I don't need to pay attention to you. Now, God also wants you to find your authentic self. Only the Elsa who sings that is the warped version of the image of God. Only the feelings that we have toward others and toward ourselves and even toward God, those mixed feelings are the mixture of the image of God and the warped image of God. The true you is not what you feel about yourself. That's going to change tomorrow and the next day it's going to change again. The true you is the image of God. So set as your ambition the goal to let the Spirit of God work in you to be the true you and become more and more like Christ. Another ambition Paul had, and it's reflected in his, his saying that he, he really, he brought the gospel out to the Gentiles. So he said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, and he has spread the faith. Paul was all about getting the gospel to places it had never been heard. And that's why he worked his way around uh, Asia Minor and Macedonia and eventually to Rome and some think he got to Spain. He kept going to get the gospel out because that was the word of life. But to get the gospel out, he had to keep the faith. The gospel was constantly being challenged. And it naturally is because people want to make God... They want to make their religion the way they want to see it. And so very early on, we saw legalists who came in and said, okay, you got Christ, but now here's the Jewish rules or any kind of religious rules, and that's what the, the Christian life is all about. And then there were those who came in and, and said, no, 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 you're saved by grace, so there's no law anymore. You can live any way you want, and God's going to forgive you. And then there was the third group that said, hey, that's a good start with Jesus Christ, but you need something more. I have a spiritual message, a secret spiritual message, a spiritual truth that I know that you don't know, and that's going to be the key to the Christian life. And Paul addresses the, the legalism in Galatians chapter 1 when he says, if anybody preaches a different gospel not a gospel of grace, but a gospel of works, then I, different from me, even if it be an angel, let him be cursed. And he brings down that 
false teaching about the gospel in Galatians. And he speaks to the Corinthians who are living uh, immoral lives. Some are sleeping with temple prostitutes. They're taking each other to court. They're arrogant. Uh, they're overlooking sin that's blatant, horrific within their church. And Paul says, do you not know that you are the temple of God, the temple of the Spirit of God? This immorality is not a part of who the Spirit of God is. And he challenges that thinking. And then he addresses in Colossians all the groups that are adding to the Christian life who say, we got a special blessing of angels or we got a special uh, blessing of the Holy Spirit that you don't have. We, we have this mystical view and relationship with God that you don't have and you need something more than Christ. That's kindergarten. And Paul says, you are complete in Christ. Especially when you get to college campuses. Everybody's going to have their own personal view of God and religion. And in their personal views, they're going to say, my view is just as accurate as yours. You may build yours on, on the Bible, but I know inside this is the way God is. And there will be those today, who, especially the cults, who they say, you get saved by works. That's out there, and you're going to find very religious people, and maybe the most religious people on your campus are going to be part of those cults. Then there are going to be those who, who say, you know what? God doesn't think that's wrong. I mean, our culture says, you know, sleep with whoever you want. And, you know, the Bible's ancient. You know, God understands that it's really about love and not about this certificate of marriage or anything. Uh, that's still out there. They're going to say, Christians can live pretty much any way they want. And then there are those Christian groups that say there's something more than Christ, especially the, the health and wealth gospel. It's really about the Spirit of God, and he wants to make you wealthy and healthy, and if you're not, then, you know, you're really not walking with the Spirit of God. See, those were there at the beginning with Paul. They're there today. Be a defender of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am a sinner. Christ died for me. I have forgiveness when I place my faith in him as Savior, and now I live for him because he loved me, and I love him back. That's the gospel. Be a defender of it. Don't cave in because everybody's right. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to God except by me. Are we going to cave on that? Paul's third was we find it in verse 18 the lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his kingdom heavenly kingdom to him be the glory forever and ever see paul's life was about the glory of god and he was having to travails he had oppression he was brought to court people deserted him but he said i can trust my god and as he thought of how he could trust God, he didn't say, goody, goody, goody. He said, isn't God marvelous? To him be the glory that I was delivered. See, in every victory, Paul saw the hand of God, and he glorified God. 
In every success, he saw the hand of God behind him. We, we can look at Paul and say, how wonderful. And Paul would say, no, how wonderful Christ is. In every failure, he saw the hand of God. In every trial, he saw the hand of God. That those trials would conform him more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. In every tribulation, he saw it as a stage in which he can glorify God and show the power of God in his weakness. See, Paul was always thinking about the glory of God. That's what his life was about. Uh, David Harvey in his book, Rescuing Ambition, said, we are all glory chasers. Alfred Adler said it in different words, one of the founding psychologists said it in different words that we're really all about trying to feel superior to others. And, and I first hear that, I say, well, am I a glory chaser? You know, yeah, I like people to say, wow, that was really good. He did, wow, he's such a wonderful person. That's nice, but I don't live by that. But then I look inside and I see I'm constantly comparing people to others. And it's like if I'm smarter than somebody, I say, you know, the most important thing in life is how smart you are. But if someone else is smarter than them, it's like, oh, the most important thing is how good of a basketball player you were. And then, if, of course, there's a lot who are smart and better basketball players. And then I go, well, it's, it's all about how nice you are. And then if, if somebody's better at this, 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 and they're better at everything than me, and I, I then say, that person must be arrogant. And I'm <laughs> humble. No, um, see, we're glory chasers. It's in our nature. But it wasn't in Paul. It was in his nature. But it was expunged by the fact that he received God's glory. See, we all have glory holes. And his was filled because he knew how treasured he was by God. He knew that God glorified him. God honored him and treasured him. God made him in that image. God gave his life for Paul. And so Paul's glory hole was filled by the glory that God gave him. And he didn't need anyone else's glory, so his life could become about glorifying God. You know, I might say, oh, my, my purpose is to glorify God. But I seldom, this was very convicting to me, I seldom think during the day in my success, in my failure, in my trial or my tribulation, I fail to think about God's part in that and then praise him and glorify him like Paul did. See, Paul's ambitions are eternal. His ambitions become like Christ. Bring the true gospel. I have to defend it, but bring the true gospel as many as I can and glorify God with my life. He was singularly focused on that road and he wouldn't let anything deter him. And so I say to college students, I say to each one of us, what is your life going to be about? Is it about the eternal? Set that before you. But I don't care how good your intentions are and how strong you are today. There are going to be defeaters that you face that are going to try to defeat you and deter you from that path. And Paul unveils three in this passage. Uh, the first is the voice, the call of this world to us. He said it about Demas. We see it right there, right? 
For Demas, in love with this present world, they had what? Deserted me. Two other books of the Bible, you read about Demas. They're serving and ministering with Paul, and Paul lifts up Demas. Demas is here with me. He, 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 Demas started toward the goal, but he left it. He deserted. Why? Because he loved this present world. Jesus gives us that warning in the parable of the soils. You know that third soil? The, uh, the, the seed begins to, to grow, but it grows among the thorns, and the thorns choke it out. And he says that the thorns are the anxiety and your love for this world. See, we're all going to face it. This world is constantly putting commercials before us, whether literally or figuratively. They are beckoning us to follow paths of, of what their goals are. Pleasure, comfort, um, wealth, riches, prestige, power. These things of the world are very tempting, very tantalizing. Demas fell to them. And the college campus, it's almost like all restraints are, are taken away. And What's going to be fed to you is where are you going in life where you can become wealthy and, and powerful and, and just enjoy everything you want to enjoy. In fact, we have all the goodies before you in the college campus itself to experience right now. And you're going to fall if you start listening to those voices and you love the world more than you love Jesus Christ. You can say right now, I love Christ and never love the world more. Demas probably said that too. You know, there's a children's story called Mr. Vinegar. Uh, Mr. Vinegar and his wife found this, uh, this little treasure. And the wife very wisely said, let's take this money and we'll br you br go to market and buy a cow. And if you buy the cow, it can produce the milk and we could sell milk and we can make cheese and we can continue to live on what the cow has. Not just spend the money, but have this serve the rest of our lives. Mr. Vinegar says, great idea. He heads off to town. He buys, buys this beautiful cow. On his way back, he hears this guy playing bagpipes. He says, wow, those, that's fantastic. I've never heard anything like that. This is the most beautiful music in the world. And Mr. Vinegar says to himself, if I only had those bagpipes, I'd be the happiest man in the world. And so he makes a trade for the bagpipes. Well, he's going home with the bagpipes, kind of really proud, but he can't play a note. And the kids are laughing at him. What in the world are you doing with that? And so he realizes these are pretty worthless. And, and while he's playing it, his hands are getting cold. And he sees a man walking with these beautiful gloves. And he says, if I only had those gloves, I'd be the happiest man alive. So he trades the bagpipes for the, the gloves. Then his hands are now toasty warm, but the journey back is really, really long. His legs are getting tired, and he sees a man come by with this stout stick that he's walking with. And he says, boy, if I, what does he say? If I only could, I want to hear it. If I only had the stick, I would be the happiest man alive, right? And he trades for the stick, and after he trades for the stick, there's this parrot up in the tree, and the parrot says, oh, you foolish imbecile. And he delineates all the trades, and he says, and now you've, all you have is this stick that you could have cut off of the bushes. And Mr. Vigner takes the stick and throws it at the parrot and gets stuck up in the tree. <laughs> and <clears throat> and he, walks, he walks home alone. 
there are going to be many, many voices. We all hear them. That is going to say, this is the trade. You start on this road with your faith. And it's not going to be a big trade. Vinegar, Mr. Vinegar would have never said, I'm going to trade the cow for nothing. I'm going to buy nothing with the money. He would never would have done it. But little by little, he trades away in something valuable for less valuable, less valuable, but less valuable. Very few Christians who say, I'm going to turn right now because I love the world. It's that voice of the world is going to take piece by piece by piece by piece till one day you may find yourself empty of faith. Don't let it deter you. Uh, a second deterrence <coughs> we see is opposition. Uh, Paul, uh, Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. I don't know the harm that Alexander did. I, we don't know where this happened, how this happened. But we do know the truth of this, don't we? There is opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's incredible when you think of the message. What is the message of Christianity? Love, God, love your neighbor as yourself, give grace, uh, unending forgiveness. There's purpose in life that lasts forever. We have truth to share with you. We call you to living a moral and beautiful life. I mean, who would not like that? We have a God who loves us so much he sent his son and God himself, the son, died for us. And yet there was opposition to that message from the very inception of it. And that opposition continues today. And you're going to hear it greatest on your, in your high schools and in your college campuses. Uh, very popular atheists, whether it be... Uh, Dawkins, Hitchens, Coyne, go on and on and on. They're writing these books that are filling the philosophy courses. They're filling the minds of Christian, of, of non-Christians. You're going to be exposed to all these atheists who are critiquing Christianity. They are twisting Christianity. They are saying things about Christianity that Christians have answered for centuries, yet they're going to act as though they just came up with it and Christians have no answers. And because you don't have the answer yet, you may think you don't have an answer, that Christians don't answer. We have answers. I know of somebody that you may, some of you know as well who entered a college campus strong in his faith. He stood out. He was passing out tracts and Bibles. He stood against, uh, you know, ridicule. And he got into one of these philosophy classes, and he left the Lord, and he's not walking the Lord this, to this day. He didn't turn to the right places that would give him answers. There is opposition. It will always be there. And so... How do we respond? You see, a lot of people today are turning and becoming more and more bitter toward Christianity. In fact, you are going to see it in your lifetime. We have not been persecuted in this country. We're not being persecuted today. But we are being marginalized. 
And that is going to grow and grow and grow. As the world's values move further and further away from Christianity, Christianity still, still speaks, and our world is not going to want us to be speaking. And they, they can't silence us. The Constitution doesn't allow that. But they can ridicule us, misrepresent us, and intimidate us. And that's going to happen more and more. The question is, are you going to stand up for Jesus Christ despite all of that? And how do we respond? There are people who are bitter toward us. Again, they misrepresent us. Are we going to do the same back? Or are we going to treat bitterness with love? Are we going to treat people misrepresenting us with misrepresenting them back? And I think we do that a lot as a Christian. Are we going to try to understand where they're coming from? Why are they making the decisions they are making? And then understand critically where, where the divide happened. Because this culture is built on Christian values. And the transformations that are happening today are grew out of, originally grew out of Christian values, but they lost the way. Understand, we have an agreement on values of love and forgiveness and valuing every life equally. Those are Christian values. The world doesn't have a basis for them. We do in our God. But let's be Christian and loving and gracious and forgiving and understanding in our response. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul saw opposition as opportunity. He was arrested, he's thrown in jail. He always saw it as opportunity to glorify God. When he's in a Philippian jailer, what is he doing? He's singing. He's singing. And what happens? The jailer ends up getting saved. Uh, the write-outs shared the story about the burning of the churches in Niger. And what's the Christian response? Bitterness? No, it's forgiveness. Immediately they come out and say, we forgive. And, they, and they're saying, the pastor's saying, now the world, this is, this is good because the world knows there are Christians in Niger. They'll be praying for us. I don't think they knew that before. Are, are we going to be intimidated by opposition? Are we going to see it as a stage that Paul saw, a stage to stand firm and to glorify our Father? The third potential deterrence is actually not the unbeliever, it's the believer. And Paul said this, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Think about that. Paul is standing up for his faith. His life is on the line, and all those Christians who were so close to him all the Christians he served, all the Christians he was willing to give his life for to get them the gospel, they all deserted him. That can be a shock to your faith. I'm the only one that has this faith? <laughs> I mean, I'm the only one willing to stand? If God's so powerful, why aren't Christians living powerfully? You know, Christopher Hitchens, atheist's author, said this, religious faith as evidenced by ordinary followers is the single greatest proof that there is no God. 
Where is that? The way Christians live is the proof there is no God. Why is he saying that? Because if there is a God who the Christians say gives the spirit to live within people, to transform them, to bring them the fruit of the spirit, joy, peace, love, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. If there is such a God, I don't see it in Christians, therefore, I believe that's what God would produce in Christians, but I don't see it. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. You look around and you say, Christian after Christian seems to fail and stumble. And we say, is, is God real? Is the Spirit powerful? Or we might even look in our own lives and we say, is he powerful? You see, that can be a defeater in our faith. That could set us off the path. Unless we're like Paul, who says, I keep my eyes on Christ. I hope all Christians get transformed. I hope I get transformed. But ultimately, I could look at Jesus Christ and I can see the power of God himself in a life. And I can look at some other Christian and see a supernatural power in their lives. Don't let that defeat us. See, Paul had a divine ambition. He headed toward it and he was not going to be deterred. But he didn't do it alone. Paul did it in and for community, the church. I mean, look, look at this list. Look at all the names that Paul mentions that that Mark got so did so well with. I mean, name after name after name. Why? Because Paul lived in community. He knew these people. He he was encouraged by them. He was supported by them. They prayed for him. Some of them taught him. Barnabas discipled him. He didn't do this on his own. And in turn, he poured himself into the community. He supported and prayed for, encouraged and taught them. He's taking Timothy specifically and particularly and reproducing himself in Timothy. And so what Paul does for, and what he produces through his life is also produced through many other lives. It's like a pyramid, Right? His life touches another, that touches another, that touches another, that touches another. That's community transforming the world. Paul couldn't have done it by himself. He couldn't have planted and stayed at all those churches. He planted, he reproduced people, they stayed. You have to be in community. Um, David Harvey said, the individual Christian simply cannot understand his ambition in purely individual terms. You see, that's what I do. He says, okay, I'm going to be like Christ. I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to glorify God. You can't, no, I can't do that without community. And if I do, if I even try and don't help the community do that, then really what I'm doing is futile. I won't be able to do it, and I'm barely touching anybody. God is about community because God is a community God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit in community forever. Your salvation comes from a community. God the Father chose you. God the Son died for you. God the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin and righteousness and brings you to faith. Your connection to God, your prayer life is community. You pray to God through the Father, 
in the name of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. Your Christian life is done in the divine community. We live to glorify the Father through the gospel of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. If God is community, how much more so did he create us to be not only in community with himself, but with each other? The individual Christian simply cannot understand his ambition in purely individual terms. It's us with us. You know, I look out at the faces today, look around. It's us together. It's one ambition, Paul's ambition, lifting each other up, praying for each other, supporting, encouraging, enjoying each other. But what was the big motivation? Why, why Paul devoting his entire life to this divine ambition? And that's really going to be a question each of us has. What's going to motivate me to this? And really what motivates Paul, we see in the last words. That's why, uh, Mark, you need, did want you to read the whole thing. <laughs> As it says, Grace be with you. Think of it. Paul knows he's going to die when he writes this. His last words to Timothy and to Timothy's church, grace be with you. Do you know Paul ended every single letter he wrote with the words about God's grace to be upon the people? Why? Because those last words loom over the entire book. Because nothing in this book, nothing in any one of Paul's letters that he wrote has any substance without the grace of God being the motivation and the means by which he lived. See, grace captured Paul's heart. He loved God because God first loved him. He said it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this. The one has died for all. Therefore, we all die. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who was, for their sake, died and was raised. Do you get that? It's the love of Christ controls me. And we don't know, is it God's love for him, his love for God, Christ's love through him? All three are true. It's Christ's love for him motivated him to love Christ back. And that's the question is, do you understand how much Jesus Christ did for you because he loved you? You. If you don't get that, you're not going to get what Paul's getting. And, and what comes to mind to me is the, the, the parable of the pearl of great price. Jesus told the parable, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and he covered up. Then in his joy, he goes out and he sells everything that he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all he had and he bought it. See that? 
You find the treasure that is so valuable. You sell everything. You devote your life to that treasure. The question that commentators wrestle with is, who's the pearl of great price? Is it Jesus? That we as Christians see such value and see such a treasure in Jesus Christ that we're willing to give everything in our lives to have him? Or is, are we the pearl of great price? And Jesus is the merchant who looked at us as the most valuable thing in the universe and said, I will sell everything. I will give everything to have you. I think both are true. And I believe we can't do the former, be willing to sell everything and treasure Christ that much until we realize we're his treasure. Do you know that? You're his treasure. He loves you so much. He would take off his robes of glory. He would step into this world, endure all that he endured, let his hands and feet be pierced, held up as a mockery, and then give his life, tortured, tormented, but most of all separated from God the Father. He did that for you. When you get that, he becomes your pearl of great price. And when he becomes your pearl of great price, you set forth a divine ambition like Paul. And when you keep that understanding that you're the pearl of great price, then there will be no things that deter you. And what's going to keep you with the pearl of great price, understanding that, is the community of Jesus Christ. It's not what we did yesterday, today, or tomorrow. It's all about when we stand at the end of our lives and we take inventory. Will we be able to say, I have fought the good fight, I have run the race? Our Father, I pray we will keep the faith. Our Lord, remind us of these words. You've inspired us this morning. Remind us, keep before us the understanding of how much Christ loves us. And then, Lord, transform us to be like him. May we be the image of God we were meant to be so that we might glorify you in all we do. In Christ's name we pray, amen.